Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. McCarthy is a teacher, an author, an entrepreneur, a mentor, a change agent, a consultant, a company director, and campaigner for the rights of women and children. In 2012, Lip Mag featured Wendy as a feminist of the week, saying, McCarthy is about identity, social justice, fairness, and women taking responsibility for 50% of the leadership of thought and activity in Australia and the world. In March 2013, she was inducted into the Women's Agenda Hall of Fame for her contribution to the lives of Australian women. Tonight, Wendy McCarthy speaks about past victories and present challenges. Has feminism failed Australian women? Please join me in welcoming Wendy McCarthy. Well, thank you for that very warm welcome. Let me begin by greeting all the distinguished guests and thank you for coming. It's always scary when you say you'll do something, whether five or 50, but 500, I didn't expect to turn up. And once I did a lecture with Donald Horne in the and <coughs> Geoffrey Bolton in Town Hall in Queensland and five people actually did come. <laughs> so I'm glad to have an audience. I do want to begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people and paying my respects to Elders past and present. And I'd like to acknowledge both the organisers and the women who have presented the Pamela Denoon Lecture over 25 years. It's a singular achievement and how proud she would be of that legacy. I realise I follow in big footsteps and I'm honoured to be the 26th presenter or is, am I the 25th? The 25th, right and have the opportunity to share what I think tonight. Of course, in response to the question, has feminism failed Australian women? The answer's no. So we could all go home now. <laughs> I shouldn't have to persuade you that that's the case. But I'm going to tell you some stories instead about it. Because tonight I want to celebrate the achievements of feminism and tell you some of the stories which remind us of the past and help us think about the future. I'm reminded of the lines, the opening lines of the go-between. The past is a foreign country. They did things differently there, and we did. We fought to have our voices heard and imagined a different Australia. Our early agenda listed our dreams, which we would believed would enable this change. An Australia where girls, all girls, had the opportunity to complete secondary education, where women who'd messed out on education had a second chance, where there was a rate of pay for the job, or equal pay, where there was universal access to safe contraception and abortion, where childcare was accessible and affordable, where the mantra of political action for women, worn on our T-shirts and pillow slips, a woman's place is in the House and in the Senate. 
We had a more racy one as well on the pillow slip called Women on Top. <laughs> Most men found it extremely exciting. <laughs> and where divorce laws were, which trapped women in abusive marriages would be changed. So who were we then? Well, Australia prior to feminism was a very different place. I grew up in that Australia in the 50s when words like career and leadership were not part of a polite girl's vocabulary. A leader was a male hero, directing from the front, military style, the antithesis of a well-raised girl who learned to wait to be asked to dance and not to be bold or pushy. My mother's fear was that I would be bold and pushy. <laughs> and risk-taking was something reserved and encouraged for boys. This remains a powerful imprint in cultural imprint for the women today. It's not that long ago. It's, we're talking 45, 50 years, but it's still a powerful imprint. Teaching was considered a very suitable occupation before marriage, but to be a secondary school teacher, you had to go to get, get to university, and for most girls, the only way to attend university was by winning a secondary teacher scholarship, which provided four years of education and a five-year bond. The bond could be waived after three years with no penalty if you were a woman and you married. Male teachers could not waive their bond when they got married. I thought this was a fabulous advantage. <laughs> However, what I now understand, it confirmed the cultural expectations that work, let alone the career, was not to be the norm for women. Marriage had a higher status as a full-time career than teaching. That's a strong cultural imprint. And of course, the age of first birth was 21. But I obediently did the right thing, married after three years, waived my bond, and like many young Australians, my husband and I left for England and spent the next three years working and travelling in Europe and America. And that experience changed me forever. Because I realised that the Australian model of a woman was not universal, but a cultural invention of our own. I met and observed, worked with women whose life trajectories and expectations were vastly different from my mother and her friends and my own peer group. And they seemed to be having a lot more fun. <laughs> in late 1967, newly pregnant, I presented myself to the New South Wales Department of Education as a teacher, six years experience, who wanted to be re-employed. Re Foolishly, I shared my exciting news with the clerk at the New South Wales Department of Education. I'm pregnant. The tone of the interview immediately changed and he explained slowly, perhaps in recognition of my newly diminished capacity, six weeks pregnant, <laughs> it was neither wise nor possible for me to make more than a casual career commitment and he would only be able to offer me casual roles and my overseas experience would not be recognised. After all, I was to be a mother. And because of my lost seniority and time out, I would be paid the same as a new graduate. We are talking about closed systems that did not enable movement. I left the interview after agreeing to be casual, feeling foolishly grateful for the job, and I wondered how a child-centred business could discriminate against motherhood but not fatherhood. It was my first serious confrontation with the intractable thinking and policy con contradictions of the state. Yes, there was a commitment to the education of girls like myself from country high schools, 
who demonstrated academic merit, and this was expressed through a scholarship. It recognised the need for skilled and dedicated teachers, but allowed women to return to their professions only as casuals, which meant, of course, they would never become principals. Meanwhile, I was having a baby, and I quickly discovered choices about birthing were limited. It seemed a long way from birthing experiences I'd observed in London, where women had the choice of a birth at home with midwives and support from a flying squad, and their families could be part of the experience. So I decided to find an obstetrician who'd support me and the way I wanted to birth, and fortunately I found one. We agreed, unusually at that time, that I was having the baby, not the obstetrician. <laughs> the first one told me, I just tell my girls to lie back and they'll wake up and there's a baby. I don't think so. I wanted to be an equal and active participant in the pregnancy and together, he said, we'll stare down the hospital so my husband could be there. He suggested I join the Childbirth Education Association where I would meet like-minded people. It was my first lobby group. A key objective was to ensure that husbands could be present at the births of their babies. Most hospitals refused to allow this. How quaint it seems now. A birth in hospital is seen as aberrant without the whole bloody extended family involved. <laughs> but it was through the Childbirth Education Association that I became part of abortion law reform. It's an easy transfer, choice about birthing, choice about whether to birth or not. And I've met a cohort of women who were passionate about abortion as a woman's right. It placed my own abortion in a different light as I'd never disclosed it, even with medical examinations. That came later. So it was my connection to the Abortion Law Reform Association that led me and others to Julia Freebury's place in 1972 to meet Beatrice Faust, who was the creator and founder of Women's Electoral Lobby, who wanted to establish a New South Wales branch. Who could have imagined where it would go? A kitchen, eastern suburbs of Sydney. Her proposition was that we copy the New York Magazine questionnaire, follow the American example and poll candidates standing for election in 1972. Sounded good. However, when it came to volunteers, of the 12 people there, only three of us timidly put up our hands, Caroline Graham, June Williams, as certes as she was then, and myself. <clears throat> Fearful of being hierarchical, we called ourselves co-conveners and offered to organise the first public meeting to test the idea and see if we could organise enough volunteers to do the questionnaire and that meant interviewing every candidate for the federal election in 1972. We did. The first survey produced answers that still resonate. They were predictable, there were predictable responses which indicated a shocking lack of understanding of women's lives and limited awareness of their aspirations to be responsible citizens and leaders. My favourite response to our poll remains that of the Minister for Benelong, can't blame John Howard, it was before him, Sir John Cramer, who in answer to the question, what is a woman's most valuable attribute, responded, a woman's most prized possession is her virginity. <laughs> it remains a call of action for those of us who have no residual value. Long gone. So let's have a little think about, well, the rise of the women's electoral lobby forced political parties to add women's affairs to the political agenda. 
and this resulted in a decade of consciousness raising, consciousness raising and a political climate of change being exciting and possible. Well created a methodology for change and the energies and skills of hundreds of women were channeled into that, probably thousands. I know in the, by the early 70s we had over 5,000 members which made us bigger than the country party as it was then. The methodology was based on research, public pressure, media relationships, telephone trees, it was a pre-internet world of course, high-level, well-crafted submissions and applications to pretty well everything, demonstrations and marches. Well was the get-up of its time. We lived and breathed it and we were on a roll. I recall one of my heroines one Sunday night, Edna Ryan, calling me to suggest I applied for a job in the Ports Authority. I demurred in that girl way, don't know anything about it, can't do it, someone else would be better. I hope no one here does that anymore. She cut in, you will do it, as we cannot have them saying, no women applied. Watching Q&A on Monday night, I heard that magic line again in response to the lack of women in the current cabinet. Women do not put themselves forward. The more things change, the more they stay the same, except it's not true. Anyway, to please Edna, I put in the application, which required a significant amount of work because I knew zilch about ports. <laughs> not surprisingly, it was unsuccessful. <laughs> but the real lesson... And importantly, I was reminded it was actually not about me. It was about us working together and agreeing to do things like that, even if it seemed humiliating. Even the thought of someone you know reading it would have been humiliating. <laughs> but we were seeing change happening. The Whitlam, Fraser and Hawke governments all contributed, albeit th through a different political lens. The achievements were breathtaking. Oral contraceptives no longer attracted the luxury cosmetics tax. Family planning clinics and services were established and primarily managed by community-based groups of women through the Family Planning Association. Sex became sexuality and a more respectable part of our social discourse. Teenage pregnancies were reduced, termination of pregnancy was placed on the medical benefit schedule, if not off the Crimes Act of most states, and police forces, for the most part, stopped harassing patients at termination clinics. We won equal pay again and thought that was the end of the matter. <laughs> but it's the advance of educational opportunity which is the crowning achievement of early feminists. Women and girls have fallen in love with education. And their successful statistics bounce off the pages of schools, honour boards, universities and TAFE colleges. The Fraser government set up a working party on women which set, led to the creation of the National Women's Advisory Council which I was appointed to. It was a hard grouping working group, well researched and sent a large decade, uh, a delegation to the mid-decade conference in Copenhagen. The Hawke government introduced anti-discrimination legislation, created the Affirmative Action Agency, remember that? And led the way to the appointment of women on boards by appointing a significant number of women to government and statutory boards. And no, we did not ruin them. Life went on. I have to say to you though that when I w we looked at the pay rates for the National Women's Advisory Council, it was the same as the pig board. 
and right down the, the bottom of the Remuneration tri um, Tribunal Act. But I would argue that the ABC to which I was appointed as Deputy Chair probably led the way in transforming public authorities. You'll be surprised to know, many of you, that in 1983 no woman had led, read the news on the ABC. Margaret Throsby had filled in once. When I queried this as a new Deputy Chair, 42, thinking I knew everything, probably good that I didn't know what I didn't know, I was advised by the Director of Radio and Television, who felt the need to combine to tell me this, that it was perfectly clear that women's voices were simply not authoritative. That changed. <laughs> I reminded them there were three women on the board, Jan, Marsh, Veronica, Brady and I, and we all felt very authoritative, and that would change. <laughs> by the end of the 80s, many people thought we'd achieved all that was needed for women to be leading responsible citizens. It seemed that grassroots activism had worked and the future looked good. Governments were doing their jobs by supporting excellent female bureaucrats and some businesses like Esso were taking the matter seriously. Unconscious bias was a hot topic. Yes, truly. It wasn't invented last week by the Business Council. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> so what's it like today? Well, of course the balance sheet is positive in terms of the change agenda of the women's movement. But it's the cultural change that, maintain it, that maintains it has not happened. Women are still falling short of their aspirations. Forgive me for being fatigued by well-known men and women discovering the issue of gender and unconscious bias. I don't want to become a grumpy old woman, but I'm having some challenging moments recently. <laughs> We've celebrated our first woman prime minister, foreign minister, Governor-General, Governors, Premiers and Heads of Key Interest Group. But is that it? No. Discussions about targets and quotas, women executives, women on boards, work-life balance, affordability of childcare, feel like reruns of old conversations. Rather like shopping for clothes and you saw you can see the things that you've worn before. As one male leader said to me recently when I posed a questionnaire women in his company, Oh, come on, Wendy, we did that in the 80s. Surely we don't have to keep on about it. <laughs> well, actually, we do. Or the victories and achievements will not be sustainable and will slip away. Persistence matters. Just watch the far right. <laughs> Change for women has not occurred in the way those of us who campaigned so hard imagined it would. The early assumptions that the glittering prizes would be ours if we followed conventional male pathways have not proved correct. Leadership cultures have been slow to respond to the aspirations and styles of female leadership or even to giving it a try. And women are still struggling with leadership issues and career paths. There are still few role models to choose from. Systemic barriers have been removed, but the cultural barriers remain. The daughters of the revolution have inherited new dilemmas and many see themselves as we did in a documentary without a script. I ponder this as I see smart, savvy young women opting for the mummy track despite maternity leave and unable to comprehend and use those fine minds to understand the reality and consequences of women's increased longevity. I wonder why they opt for full-time wifedom when the odds for enduring marriages are not good. 
especially in unequal relationships with one income. I'm surprised at the new decision to change your name and take the name of the man you've married in your 30s after you've established your own brand. Hannah Rosen's book, The End of Men, Don't Get Excited, and The Rise of Women, offers some insights. Rosen's research on the US and the moderately educated middle class, meaning high school graduates, finds the rise of women is associated with the slow erosion of marriage and a growing cynicism about love. As the women slowly improve their lot, they raise the bar for what they want out of marriage and the men of their class are failing to meet their standards. The men may cling to traditional ideas about themselves as providers, but they are further than ever from being able to embody those ideals. By contrast, among the educated class, women's new economic power has produced a renaissance of marriage. And they're more fluid about who plays what role, who earns more money, and who sings the lullabies. They've gone beyond, beyond equality and invented whole new models of marriage. But in most group, both groups, more women are becoming the main breadwinners. It's a fascinating trend and shift. The old architecture of manliness has gone, but without an obvious replacement. How did the F word become so scary, despite gender being back on centre stage and women holding important public positions? I often hear that chorus, I'm not a feminist, but, followed by a litany of concerns that sound like gender issues to me, <laughs> but are not identified in that way. That feminism still makes sense comes as a shock to those who for the first 30 years of their lives have been one of the boys, or at least not hampered by being female. It is the shock of noticing that your voice is not heard or discovering you are paid less than your male peers. And it's my view that women now experience the most powerful social and institutional discrimination during their 20s and early 30s after they've left the educational institutions and began, begun pursuing their dreams and ambitions. This obstacle occurs at precisely the age when they might like to marry and have children. At this point, they must decide whether to hold on to their dreams, downsize their ambitions, or abandon them altogether. Often a young woman must make this decision when she's learning to be a parent with its attendant pleasures, fears, insecurities, and exhaustion. My own experience is that we do not identify our ambitions often until later in our professional lives. When children have been raised, sexual identity has settled and the capacity to manage relationships and to do the things described as feminine are no longer in doubt. It's often then that the mastery and resilience required for mature leadership is within our reach. But that is too late for those who birth late who've missed out on the work experience and the networks which offer and support those roles. Glass dealings have been shattered, yes Tony. Sticky floors have been smooth, yes Bill. Male champions have emerged but those annoying statistics tell us there is a long road ahead for women of Australia to hold up half the sky. A contemporary well, well agenda might ask how it happened after all this, there's one woman in cabinet. Domestic violence and rape are accepted as almost intractable in some communities. Despite our court victories on equal pay, 
a gap remains in the order of 17%. Pregnancy discrimination is prevalent, affecting more than one in five women. Women hold 17.6% of board positions in the ASX 200, and only seven are CEOs. The workforce participation of women at 60 plus 65% puts us at a low level internationally and reduces our national productivity. Affordable and accessible childcare still alert us. And current proposals to change this focus on the needs of some women, not all, and certainly not all children. I think childcare is a child-centred business. Measuring our progress is seen as an impost on corporations and of little value in a world that otherwise insists that what gets measured gets done. And that inane argument around quotas and targets which tries to look like something else, far easier to simplify it, settle for 50-50 for everything and stop being grateful everyone for those tiny incremental numbers going from 17% to 17.6%. This all could be done overnight. I want to talk now a bit about voice. Thinking about the future and the little bit of time I have left, I want to suggest how we might reframe some of these issues in order to retain our hard-won hard victories. I think one of Wells' great achievements was enabling women's voices to be heard, actively heard. That means that they were listened to. And here are some thoughts on the power of voice discussed recently by Mary Beard, Professor of Classics at Cambridge, in her lecture, The Public Voice of Women. You can find it on the London Review of Books. It is a glorious lecture, but I'll just give you a few of her words. She spoke of the tradition of gendered speaking. What interests me is the relationship between that cl classic Homeric moment of silencing a woman, it's when tell Telemachus tells Penelope to shut up, and some of the ways women's voices are not publicly heard in our own contemporary culture and in our own politics from the front bench to the, short, uh, to the shop floor. It's a well-known deafness that's nicely par parodied in the old punch cartoon. That's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it. I love Miss Triggs. She's been part of my working life for years. I was so delighted to see her get star billing in this discussion. She continues, there's a culturally awkward relationship between the voice of women and the public sphere of speech making, debate and comment. Politics in its widest sense from office committees to the floor of the house. I'm hoping that the long view will help us get beyond the simple diagnosis of misogyny that we tend a bit lazily to fall back in on. To be sure, misogyny is one way of describing what's going on. But if we want to understand and do something about it, the fact that women, even when they are not silenced, still have to pay a very high price for being heard, we have to recognise that it's a bit more complicated and there's a long backstory. For these attitudes, assumptions and prejudice are hardwired into us, not into our brains. There's no neurological reason for us to hear low-pitched voices as more authoritative than high-pitched ones, but into our culture, our language 
and millennia of our history. And we would know in recent history how many people complained about our Prime Minister's voice, as though that was a reason not to listen to her. So when we're thinking, Mary Bid continues, about the underrepresentation of women in national politics, their relative muteness in the public sphere, we have to think beyond what the Prime Minister and his chums get, got up to in the Bullingdon Club, beyond the bad behaviour and blo blokish culture of Westminster, beyond even family-friendly hours and childcare provision, important as they are to us. We have to focus on the more fundamental issues of how we've learned to hear the contributions of women. Or going back to the cartoon, what I call the Miss Triggs question. Not just how does she get a word in edgeways, but how can we make ourselves more aware of the processes and prejudice that make us not listen to her? I want to think too about another issue for the future, reproductive rights, our right to choose. We've made many advances in the area of reproductive rights and we must never again lose any of those. For while we're talking at one level about health, at another level we're discussing something much more fundamental. Feminists must indicate very clearly what the links are between abortion rights and personal liberty. We must see and demonstrate to other people the connection about taking away women's reproductive rights and having our own and their small freedoms cut. We've had only a small time with these rights. Only a small time when we haven't had to help friends, mothers, aunts with the results of backyard abortions or seen women, seen, see women die from septic abortions. It would be a terrible thing if we were to go back to that, if our own daughters had to face those sorts of dilemmas. If as feminists we retreat from a focused defence of abortion rights, we will lose one of the most dramatic and popularly supported victories that we have ever had in this country. It really is up to us. If we define ourselves as an embattled minority, we may become one. We are the majority and we must continue to articulate these sentiments and arguments coherently. If you think, about, if you think I always talk about these matters, you are right. And every few years I read The Handmaid's Tale, which was published in Canada in 1985 to baffled and sometimes anxious reviews but has not been out of print since. Author Margaret Atwood wrote in 2012, some books haunt the reader, others haunt the writer. The Handmaid's Tale has done both. She writes, it's become the sort of tag for those writing about shifts towards policies aimed at controlling women and especially women's bodies and re reproductive functions. I made a rule for myself that I would not include anything in my writing that human beings had not already done in some other place or time or for which the technology did not already exist. The group hangings, the clothing specific to castes and classes, the forced childbearing, the children stolen by regimes and placed with high-ranking officials, the forbidding of literacy, the denial of property rights, all had precedence in Western society and within the Christian tradition. When asked if The Handmaid's Tale is about to come true, I 
Margaret Atwood, remind myself that there are two futures in this book. And if the first one comes, the second one may do so also. Moving to something more successful, although we were successful there, let's talk about education. To me, education is still the greatest game in town. It's the trusted way out of the ghetto of poverty and prejudice. And according to the World Bank, it remains the best contraceptive. <laughs> I want to read you what Bryony Scott, Dr. Bryony Spock, spoke to her schoolgirls and parents at a speech day recently. I don't know about you, she said, but I'm not here to raise a generation of young women who, by listening to the words around them, draw the conclusion that they are second rate simply because they're female and therefore not quite good enough. Young women learn from the comparative language used that expectations of their success are somehow less than their male peers or that they're not expected to perform quite as well. They learn from a multitude of cues, invariably adult and cultural, about how to relate to and with men, how to behave, what is expected of them. We don't educate our girls here and provide them with every opportunity to have them earn 82% of what their brother or boyfriend will earn for the same role, a percentage gap that is growing, not diminishing. We don't educate young women so they can moderate the behaviour of boys in the classroom and help raise their standards. We don't use girls to socialise the behaviour of boys. This view is unfair on the girls and offensive to the boys, who are quite capable with good teaching of fully engaging in their own learning. We don't raise our girls to play sport like a girl. We raise them to play sport confined only by the rules of good sportsmanship. These are not young women who are being raised to defer simply on the basis of gender. They are not women who are being raised to be second best when they have the capacity to do better. They are not women to who are expected to be silent or, not to, or to not think or to act a certain way because there is a boss who blusters or a bully who intimidates. To be honest, I don't know what these young women will do if given the chance, but what they do is up to them. And then I want to finish by reading a part of Billy Bragg's essay, A Map for Masculinity, because if we want that for young girls, we also need to think about young men. Billy Bragg described how when he was invited to speak at the inaugural Being a Man Festival in London some weeks ago, he struggled to get a grip on what it means to be a man today. Most of the things that men once relied on to express their masculinity can now be done as well by women. He writes that the elephant in the room is feminism. Women have already begun their journey across the landscape of gender and persevering against great odds have made considerable progress over the last century. He says the question we must ask ourselves is are we going to drive on like a stubborn dad who pre pretends he knows where he's going when everyone in the car knows he's lost? <laughs> or are we going to pull over and ask a woman for, woman for direction? It seems a good question to ask, thank you.
Thank you very much for that. What we're going to do now is we're going to allow some questions from our audience. So we're going to grab a couple of microphones here and um, we'll race them up and down just for a few minutes for some um, questions and then we'll go outside into the foyer where you can might be lucky to have a chance to talk to Wendy. Um, do we have any audience questions? Or has Wendy given you all the answers? My name is Sarah, and I'm the mother of three sons, which I found very difficult to be. But I just wanted to make a comment more than a question. And it's about my observation of feminism and what we have today. And Can that you just is. Speak a little bit closer to the microphone. Sorry. That's better. That is that, um, that I believe that we do lead the way and that men haven't made the choice to come with us and to make the changes that are needed for us to, to exist on the planet equally. That they need to make a fundamental change in themselves. It has to be their choice. We can't force them to go there. They have to want to go there. So I'm just waiting for that to happen and I'm waiting for them to acknowledge this. So thank you. I think we, well, I'd agree with your sentiment that we do need men. We need, I mean, I just go back to the simple number 50-50. If we're sharing things, the world is very different. Um, I'll have been married for 50 years this year. It seems remarkable, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it did, <laughs> it has. And I guess that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about, just mentioned Billy Bragg, who's, you know, talking to, singing in the opera house and writing and so on. And I think it's really important that we do acknowledge that that's happening. But on the other hand, I'd say that I did wait about 25 years for anyone to increase their domestic contribution by more than 15 uplifting minutes. So there's still <laughs> quite a way to go. questions that are half-formed in my mind. We are in a society in Australia that we are being told has become increasingly unequal between the haves and the have-nots. And that means inequalities between groups of women as well as between groups of men and between men and women. And you haven't really given us many pointers about where you might like us to go um, as we seek for the kind of, a different kind of society. Many people here will know Jean Blackburn, of Jean Blackburn, and, and I remember Jean always challenging this. It's not a better society if the same number of women and men are making nuclear bombs. So what should be the slogan? 
for the future for women who have ambition? Well, uh, my own sort of life working slogan, when I, which I think was in part of me, but when I got to state it, was keep your head and your heart connection, connected. And if you can do that, it helps clarify a lot of things you, about what you stand for and how much you'll stand for, professionally, personally. Um, I think it's a, it's a useful way to sort of trust your instinct, um, to learn to trust your gut uh, instinct. Every time I do something just entirely on the basis that it seems rational and sensible, and I'm feeling a bit uneasy in my heart, it's been the wrong thing to do. And I think for most of us, and if we were working through an ethical framework and asking what is the right thing to do, that's one of the places that we end up. And I think, I think one of your references was, you know, the differences within women now. I think they've always been there, but I think that there's, there's a greater divide around individual wealth for women than we've ever seen in, in, in my lifetime. I mean, well, nobody, no women I knew had money. Now we've got, you know, extremely wealthy women and extremely poor women, and then the rest of us somewhere in the middle, you know, on the edges of those. And I think that there's... That's, that's where government always assisted to smooth out some of those differences. My most fearful thing is that that gap gets larger and that becomes really even more important a reason to think about the impact of what you do in your professional life on the lives of other women as well as your immediate family who normally you would take that into consideration. I kind of try to do that, not always successfully, but it stays with me as part of how I make a decision. Thank you, Wendy. That was a, a, a very inspiring speech. I wanted just to pick up on, a couple of, on one point in particular, and you just talked about your professional life there, so that it was about life. And I think sometimes terminology can determine how people think about life generally. And I guess I have a, a bit of a concern about people talk about work-life balance. When I think we're talking about life balance for everybody and work, our profession, or side of life is part of that life balance. And I wonder if maintaining a work-life binary separation actually creates some of the, 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 the differences that people perceive between male and female roles, that the work-life balance is more about what women do and men just have a life that includes work. And I wonder if maybe the language started to change then some of the thinking might change as well. Well, I think that's what Hannah Rosen started to look at in the US when she talked about the end of men and saw these great differences in class and income. And, you know, the, the sort of typical thing that happened in, a, in a, an American city, and, and, of course, it's going to happen here in where places have closed down, where, particularly around the automotive industry, that the men lost their jobs... And the women who maybe had part-time jobs, a couple of children, 
and, but they didn't do much. The men just came home and sat depressed, staring outside the wall, all their pride, self-esteem knocked around. She'd go off to Walmart and stack things in the middle of the night, then she'd get a part-time job. Then she'd realise that she needed a certificate and she could be on further, further up the shelf list. Then she got a diploma and then she'd go for a degree. And he's still standing there, not knowing what to do. He hasn't got that map for masculinity in a new world. And I think, that's, I think we're going to see a lot of that here. I've seen it in professional groups. I've seen men sitting in shopping centres in Sydney who their wives think go to work and they haven't, been, haven't had a job for years until the money runs out. But that, and now we're seeing that, you know, in, in a different way, I think. So I'm fearful of that and I'm, you know, and I wonder how. But men ultimately have to do it for themselves. And, you know, we know that and you can kind of help, but um, they've got to ask, maybe they've still got to ask the woman for direction. <laughs> and that's hard. It's really hard. There's a woman up there who's had a hand up for quite a long time too. Sorry, over here. Sorry, does that person want to speak or...? Um, my question is um, a little bit sort of light-hearted, but... Um, Just uh, pop the microphone closer to your mouth. Yeah, sure. I think um, you're on ABC reading the news. <laughs> oh, <laughs> only. Um, uh, yeah, my question is a, is, is a kind of bit light-hearted, but um, at the beginning of the speech you were discussing um, how generations have changed and how you um, begun in a different generation um, within gender, and you discussed the 1950s. Um, last week I did a course at the Australian uh, Film, Radio and Television School and I got into a bit of a, a debate about just general sexism and feminism with three guys um, and, I mean, sorry, I'll try and hurry this up, but um, through what we were talking about, um, one of the guys um, rolled his eyes and said, um, oh, well, come on, I mean, you know, it's better than things were in the 1930s I mean, I know women who are like bosses now and stuff. Um, and also, you know, like women get paid like as much as, as, much as men sometimes. And although, although I had so much anger and I could think of so many things to discuss, you know, um, with people like this, uh, this is the kind of sexism and feminism that I experience in my generation, particularly on the internet as well. Um, I read a really great quote, sorry, I'll be really quick, I swear. I read a really great quote um, that said, um, arguing about feminism on the internet um, makes me feel like a cat chasing a laser around a room, um, just half as entertaining. So my question to you, <laughs> my question to you is, what would your answer have been to this douchebag? <laughs> to, to who? Sorry, you have to repeat the question. <laughs> Everyone um, else got said, it, but I can't. He said, come on now, stuff has changed. Um, it's not like the 1930s. Right. I know women who have been bosses and like, I know some women get paid just as much, if, if not more. What would you have said to him? I probably would have said, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to make any difference to... Um, I think my response won't make any difference to what you think, so I'd rather have another drink. Um, <laughs> and then I'd go and get your friends 
and I'd go down to the pub or a cafe or somewhere and I'd sit around and I'd rehearse that scene and practice until you've got some fabulous lines. <laughs> and bring them out all the time. It's, it's, it's one thing, for some years I wrote the Cleo sex advice column, which my children think is my finest achievement, I'd have to say. <laughs> but anyway, one of the things I used to do was just help give young people lines about, no, I don't want to have sex now. I don't want to do this now. I don't want to do things that I don't want to do. And you know, you would probably find, you could have a lot of fun and you would find lines that enable you to get through that because you're not going to change his mind. And he's baiting you. And, you know, save your oxygen for someone worthwhile. <laughs> yes. No, other side first. <laughs> she has been ha having her hand up for a long time. Um, thank you very much for your speech. It was wonderful. Um, my question is about, I'm a young law student here at the ANU, and I'm finding that increasingly as I'm moving into the decisions of where I want to work and what kind of environment I want to be in, that there's a lot of emphasis, even um, if it's under the surface, of me kind of hiding that I'm a woman, or I have to have more traditional masculine traits. And so any time that I'm in a job interview or something like that, and it's a group session, um, the boys in the interview will be getting straight in there, and I have to be equally as abrasive or, you know, I have to, yeah, use these more traditionally masculine, this traditionally masculine role. But I'm not like that. That's not who I am as a person. And so I was just wondering if you could give some advice to young women like me who don't want to have that kind of personality dominate who I am in the workforce and potentially want to be in a more corporate environment where that's seen as, as the norm and that's the most positive attribute that I could have. Well, I, I think it comes back to the, you know, the old slogan about, you know, if you want to be a man, you haven't got enough ambition. But the, the truth is, I think that it, it's really about my point about one of the, we never imagined what we would achieve, therefore we never actually thought about that, that position. You guys are going to have to do that for yourself. We've given you a lot. <laughs> you have to work out a few tricks for yourself, and that is one of them. In one of the things that I did in a very deliberate way was set up a mentoring practice, which I ran for 15 years, and it was focused on young men and women, but mostly women, the companies took it up, who had a one-to-one -one mentor placed by me, or my daughter who worked with me and who now runs and owns the business. I work for her, as I should, she says. Um, <laughs> and, and what we did was we found that way to have those rehearsals with an independent person who wasn't in charge of your pay pack or your promotion, to get some strategies and tactics about how you do it. It's not about you. As soon as you realise it's not just about you, it's about a whole group of people, you will find, and it's written in all the best, you know, change management structures, you know, there's those against, those opposed, this big group in the middle, you'll take away, you'll start to take away the middle group when you give them some lines and you think about it. And we don't know what women's leadership really could be like. Will it be any different from men? We haven't had enough practice. We haven't got enough results and we haven't got enough role models. What we do know is that it brings out hostility in men. And we don't know for how long that hostility will last. 
the hostility we had from men early in the women's movement more or less faded away in terms of most of the people we had to work with, I think through the 70s and 80s in government. But it came back again in the mid-90s. Well, in, actually in the early 90s, there was some of it around in that government before the change. And now there is still a lot of hostility or a dismissal as there was the other day. This is only a side issue from the Minister for Finance. This is not something that's central. Well, you have to place yourself in the middle of a central narrative. And maybe you need a few lines as well. But you don't have to sell your soul and your professional ambition to be the same as someone who you don't want to be the same as. We need people to go to work. There'll be plenty of opportunity. And most people, you know, you're a lucky person anyway if you can find a job and work in a place that's congenial and wonderful for you. Um, but that's, what, that's where we all want to be. And work, work is very important. So you just have to keep going until you find someone. I'm sure you will. That's better, right um, in there. So, um, yeah, I want to specify that I'm an Asian because um, I feel like in my peer group who are Asians as well, they're not that concerned about her own status as a, as a female. So how would you advocate feminism to non-white culture? Because I feel like feminism is pretty much a white ideology. Like a lot of my white friends, female friends, are so concerned about that her own welfare, but in compared to my friends who are not white people, they're not concerned at all. So have you had any experience in advocating feminism or at least raising the awareness of female welfare to non-white people? Yep, I have. I've worked a lot with indigenous people and I've worked a lot with people from Asia and various African countries. But let's talk about Asia first. Um, six weeks ago, I launched a network called Dawn which is the brainchild of a, um, a Vietnamese woman called Dai Li, who used to be a documentary um, maker for ABC. And she uh, ran for politics for the Liberal Party um, in the seat of Cabramatta some years ago. And she's someone whom I've mentored and been kind of extra auntie to for about 20 years. And she set up an Asian women's network and it's, um, it's based in the western suburbs and it meets in Parliament House. I love the strategy. A group of Asian women come and sit down in the middle of Parliament House and, they, and the, the white bread of the rest of us look around and they go, oh. And they talk about... And what was interesting at the launch, too, I would say, that probably 40% of the people who came and supported the launch were their, were their men. Uh, husbands, brothers, friends, whatever. She is very, very ambitious for this group because she believes, as you do, that feminism does matter to these women, to the young women. They're mostly young women. I mean, young to, well, everyone's young to me, but pretty young. <laughs> um, and they, they are now meeting regularly. You can, you can look up them up on... They've got a website, D-A-W-N, um, and, and you can get in touch with Di because she's planning... She's 
she's fantastic. She'll probably be in Parliament after the next state election. And she will... Um, she's, she's really on a roll and she's going to determine to make this a national organisation. And she sees issues... One of her big issues at the moment, and it's a big issue that I wanted to raise but I didn't tonight, it was about ageing, and she's very concerned about people like her mother, who are my age, ageing in loneliness and despair, despite having three clever daughters and a clever son and whatever, in, in, in suburbs in Sydney and, and kind of in, in cultural silos. And, and all of them are wanting to do... And also that they become um, prey to uh, gambling cartels and they go to casinos all the time. So that's one of the things. But it is really about status and support and helping women ensure that they know um, what their rights are. And, I mean, these are well-educated women as well as w women who are running businesses. Uh, my experience in China and... Hong Kong and Japan, where I worked for a couple of years, would be that in terms of solid achievement, in terms of business and leadership, or business leadership, most of the Asian women are far ahead of Australian women. But not many people here actually realise that. But you pick up a Forbes magazine or something and you'll see two-thirds of the women in leaders of the world in big corporations are Chinese. Exhausted? Done? <laughs> Last question. Hello. Oh, it's on. Um, thank you very much for your speech this evening. Um, my question is just in regards, I guess, to my generation. I think one of the hardest things that we face in promoting <coughs> feminism is a general sense of apathy. Um, I was just wondering, because I often find, you know, if I'm talking about an issue, say it's, I don't know, wage or pay discrimination, and the response I often get is, like the other young girl said before, oh, but no, I think women make almost as much, isn't that enough, kind of response, which often just makes me feel hopeless to an extent. Um, and I was just wondering, have you ever battled apathy amongst others before, and how did you overcome that, or, or did you? Well, I think... The, the beginning of the, the sort of second wave of feminism in Australia this, that I've talked about was really the first large, well, the first significant cohort of women who'd had a secondary, um, a, a university education. Although there are only 3% of us went to university when I went there, we, we, we expected more, even not when we started, but along the way. And... We wanted to use our skills in particular ways. We were mostly young parents or, you know, just sort of setting out in our lives and we were younger. We also didn't work the hours that you are expected to work. That is one very big significant difference. So I might have gone to work during the day, you know, part-time when I was teaching at one stage and with a couple of babies and so on. And I might have gone out in the evening. But, you know, my husband and I, when we both went back, when we were both working full-time, we were mostly home at half past five or six. You know, that doesn't happen now. In People work long hours. Now, women in factories at the same time were also working long hours and doing side shifts with people. So you know that there are some people for whom it is simply not possible to do any more than they do. Getting through the day is about as much as they can do. 
So you have to find the people who've got the time and usually it's in the moment, there are touch points and moments, you know, when you say, actually, that's not acceptable to say that to me. Actually, I don't want, I don't want to be paid less than you when I'm doing the same amount. And I think you'll find that there's, there's a confluence and coincidence of interest and it just happens in life. So if your antenna is out there, and you know, there are only 12 of us started and, then, and really most of the rest slipped away and the three of us started. We'd never done anything like it, but it was the right idea at the right time. Just be ready for the next right time and start preparing the world for it. It can't be that far. And I, I actually believe it's not very far away here. I think that there is a tipping point about to happen again around feminism and the feminist agenda. But then I've always been optimistic. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.